As Terry said, we are um, starting a new series today. Um, we just came out of a series on Silence and Solitude, which was a very practical series. Like it was practical to the point that we stopped the sermon to practice Silence and Solitude in the midst of it. And after this, most likely we're going into another series after this one, which is six weeks, as Terry said, on community living. So again, a bit which we plan to practice as we go. So a very practical, immediately applicable sermon. This series is not necessarily that sort of series. Um, we are, instead of diving into application, we're looking at a context in which we apply this. We're looking at the context in which we're disciples, the context in which we practice silence and solitude, the context in which we practice community. Um, and context is very important. Um, when you open the Bible, and this was some, my um, experience, for those who don't know, I became a Christian in my early 20s. And it was the first time I sat down to read the Bible. And I, the thing that struck me first was it was not an instruction manual. I expected to open the Bible and to find basically like Matthew 1, do all this stuff, Matthew 2, do these things, and so on for the entire text. And instead, I found a story. Um, it is a story in which lots of things are given to us to do, but it's still a story. And... That seems to be the way God works. The Bible gives us lots to do, but primarily God is telling us what the world's like and what he's doing in it and inviting us to take part in that and to embrace that. Jesus came to teach us an entirely new way to live, but he did so in the context of announcing a kingdom, of telling us what the world was like. The kingdom as at hand, context, so repent and believe, action. So this time we're trying to, in this series, take a step back and look at the context in which this happens. And as Terry laid out, we are going about as far back as we can to try and get everything in. We're starting literally with what Heidi read, Genesis 1, and we're ending with Terry in six weeks at Revelation. Um, it's a six-week series. Next week, I'm covering basically three-quarters of the Bible in 30 minutes. So come to see how that one goes. Um, so we're starting at Genesis 1 to give a context to our lives. And really, Genesis 1, these first 11 chapters of Genesis is what we're officially covering today, creation and the fall, and really that kind of stretches on through the end of Genesis 11, sets a context for the entire Bible. And as Dan and I were discussing earlier, it's, um, it's a controversial context. These are not chapters without controversy. Um, and I am going to conveniently in some ways just sidestep a lot of the controversy. The challenge we have is often we have questions we want answered that we bring to the Bible, hoping we have a science textbook that lays those things out. We come wondering exactly how old is the world? How did this creation thing work in detail? Did Adam have a belly button? And we come looking for, we want a clear text with headings and some bold words that are defined over here and maybe a sidebar detailing the important things and some more a challenging detail, and God goes through exactly how that went out. And that's not what we get. And the form something comes into us is important. We, do, we read Psalm 136 prior to this. That psalm used to drive me up a wall because it's repetitive. You get that same phrase every time again. It's not even like he completes a thought and then puts that in there. It's like mid-sentence. Let's just insert it. Just wedge that statement in there. But if you keep reading, you start to get, this is an important idea. The form is intended to draw out what's important. And the same is true about the opening chapters of Genesis. Um, 
as Heidi read it, it starts in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And this is a chapter that far from being a science textbook is more closer to a poem. This is not a poem. It's not written in a Hebrew form of a poem, but it's written in very poetic language. It comes across and you hear the cadence of it. God said, and it was so, an evening and a morning, the first day. God said, and it was so, an evening and a morning, the second day. And he starts to add things where he starts to bless and he starts to say how things are good, but it has this building cadence to it. So we're dealing with something that far from being a textbook is more in a song. We want to look at what it's trying to drive out, not simply come with our questions to it. That makes sense? And it is. Just because it's got a more poetic structure doesn't mean it's trying, trying to say things. It is trying to get some points across. And I want to draw three things out just from the opening creation narrative. The first is that God is the actor here. The opening section of Genesis runs from Genesis 1 through, it really runs through about 2-3. The chapters were a later edition. This is actually a weird break they put here, where it's the seventh day when God rests. And then there's a marker at 2-4, which seems to start the next past section. This entire first section, the only person who really acts is God. I have a water there. Um, God acts and the world responds. He is the one who, you can notice in the opening again, God said, and God saw, and God separated, and God called. And all that happens is the world responds to what God is doing, or it gets described by what God is saying about it, or he names it. Even when he gets to humans, he talks about how he's going to make us, he creates us, he blesses us, he speaks to us a blessing, he gives us a job, and he gives us provision in that, and we say nothing in this entire section. And the point that's trying to be driven home at the very opening of the Bible is that there is a gulf between us and God in terms of what type of thing we are. God is the only being that is not created. He is the one who creates everything else and from whom everything else gets its life and its substance. And this is to come against an impulse we have, which is we kind of want to come around God put our arm around him like a peer and say, that's a pretty nice creation we got there. (laughs) When what Genesis is trying to drive home is we should probably stand with the rocks and go, that is an amazing God we have up there. It's trying to, it puts, puts us and creation on one side, all creation on one side and God over here. This is not to say there's no relationship there because he speaks to us is the first thing he does. But it is to say we are a different sort of being than God. God is something wholly other than us. So the, and the second thing, so first thing is that God is the actor in all of this. The second thing is that it's a very deliberate act. And this is not always the case with the creation myth. Um, I think one of the, the major creation, I believe it's the Assyrians, their gods get into a fight, two of them. And one of them kills the other one. And in order to make sure it doesn't come back, rips the corpse in half. The bottom half of the corpse becomes the earth and the upper half gets put into the sky. And then he realizes that he has nobody to take care of this, so he takes the blood of another god he killed and mixes it with dirt to get us. My wife just wrinkles her nose. The point's not the disgusting aspect of that. It is that we're a byproduct. 
of a main event. There's a main event happening with the gods, and we're kind of an unintentional thing that happens. And that is common through a lot of the creation myths. And that's not what happens here in the Bible. This is an intentional, deliberate act. And that's where the structure of it really comes in again. This is a structured act. It has that rhythm of a song. You don't have songs by accident. And God comes in and you can, there's a, a beauty in the way that he creates. He spends three days separating and naming. He comes in and he clears a spot up top and he separates light from darkness on the first day. And then he comes the second day and he pulls basically the bottom up from that and he creates the heavens in the middle and there's waters beneath. So he creates a second space. Then he comes the third day to that bottom thing and he clears out the water and creates a third space. He spends three days going through and essentially building a house. And this is a metaphor that gets used for creation all the time. He builds a three-structured, three-leveled house. And if there's one thing we know about architects, they aren't haphazard people. You don't go and build a palace and just think, I'll start a wall here and I'll start a wall over there and we'll see how this turns out. Now, when you build something with an architectural mindset, you come knowing what you're trying to do before it happens. And that's the image we get here of God slowly and carefully building and clearing these spaces and creating a structure for creation. And then he comes in And just to drive this home more, he goes and he fills it in the next three days. And he doesn't do it in a haphazard manner. You ever note, on the first day, what did he do? He cleared a space up here. He separates light from darkness. And then he puts the sun and the moon there to reign over that and to keep that separation in place. So day one to day four. Then he comes on day five. What's he do? Fish and animals. What did he do on day two? He created the waters in the sky. And then on the third day, the last day, the sixth day, well, not quite the last, but the last day of the six days, he goes and he sees the last space and he puts animals there. So he has gone and he has carefully, he has both carefully built and he's carefully filled these rooms. Creation is a purposeful, slowly intended thing that God did with an aim. This is not a byproduct of God doing something else more important. This was God's goal. When he set out to create, he set out to create as he did, which is why you can say it's good. Which brings to that, the the final thing, you have that cadence of the song, which is driving forward the God said it was the fourth day. God said it was the fifth day. God said it was, and then the rhythm kind of breaks. You get like a record scratch um, from God in his song of of creation. Because he pauses and he does something he's never done before. Every other time, he's just spoken and it happens. Here he stops and he announces an intention. He's setting apart this creation from the rest of creation. He says, let us create man in our own image. He announces what he's going to do before he does it. He's trying to signal. The rhythm breaks. Again, the structure of how this lays out is important. The rhythm breaks and God is going to do something different. He's going to make man. And he makes man here as the chief of his creation. Again, in the, for some reason, the whole structure of this is very much, it looks just in my mind like my daughter's um, dollhouse. But he has this thing, he has the three rooms, and he comes and it's just teeming with fish and birds and animals and stars that go beyond count. And then in the center of it, he places two people. Just sits down there, he commences this huge space, and he carefully puts down the final two things. The ending piece is two people being placed in the center of it. 
So we have in this opening, just the way this song flows, we have that God is a, he is the creator. He is the actor in all of this. That what has occurred is according to his goodwill. And that man is at the, at the, um, is the pinnacle of this creation. And finally, he says that it's very good. So what he has done, he has achieved the goal he set out. Again, architects, even with planning, can get to the end of their house and go, ooh. We built a house when I was in Indiana, and um, we built the house we were at, and when the architect got done, they'd put the door in the wrong spot. It was, I think it was like eight inches over. So they had to put a window in and it, to kind of balance it out, but it always looked slightly awkward because the door, they basically had accidentally not lined the hallway up with the rest of the house. So we got the door in the wrong spot. God's not that sort of architect. That architect could not look at what he did and go, very good. <laughs> he might've gone, yeah, it's pretty solid. It was a nice house. But God actually at the end of creation looks and goes, this is very good. But he does, here again, he doesn't do what we kind of wish he did. He rests. What we wish he did was actually kind of lay out his manifesto for why. We just, he's told us he created. He told us that he did it. It was intentional, which means there had to be a purpose. He put us at the pinnacle of it. And it's very good. And then he rests. What we really wish was like Genesis 2 was God's like manifesto, at least like a five-year plan. So we know why he's doing what he's doing. But he doesn't lay it out explicitly. But he does give us clues. I think we can still look at this text and get a feeling for why God, what God was aiming at when he built this. And we can do it by looking at what, one of the ways you can do it at least, is you can look at what he asks man to do. You can tell something about why somebody, somebody brings a situation to be by what they try and accomplish with it. If I invite you over to my house, and the first thing I do is suggest that, hey, let's move around the furniture for a while until I get my living room straight. You, would be re- you could reasonably assume the reason I invited you over was not camaraderie and getting to know you better. I needed help moving my furniture around. So we can look at what God tr- tells people to do. The pinnacle of his creation, what does he tell them to do? And he gives them three tasks. The first two are found at the end of Genesis 1. Um, in verse 29, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's number one. Number two, subdue it and have dominion over pretty much everything he's put in this house of his. So those are the first two. And then over in chapter two, in verse 15, he tells them to keep, to work and keep the garden. So in the opening section, before the fall, he gives them three jobs. They are to be fruitful and multiply, They are to subdue and have dominion, and they're to take care of this garden. Now, being fruitful and multiplying is pretty straightforward. Um, I mean, he literally puts two naked people in a garden and basically goes, okay, make more. That's pretty much, that one's straightforward. Um, And as a church, we've got that one down. You can have a booming kids ministry. The second one strikes us a little strange. He tells them to subdue and have dominion. And if those words sound forceful to you, they are. These are words that are used elsewhere to describe what an army is supposed to do to their enemies. 
They're words that get used to refer to how masters treat their slaves. They subdue and have dominion, which makes them seem kind of out of place here. Because we have an image in our head, at least I do, of basically a perfect world. I mean, I, looked at my, I was looking at my daughter's storybook Bible, which I'm very fond of, so I'm not criticizing it here. But the image at the end of this story, when God says it's perfect, is Adam and Eve standing here, the sun setting off in the mountain. It's a beautiful mountain. Everything's in order. It's a beach. And there's a lion standing next to, sitting next to them, which is a little on the nose, but it's there. And you look at that and you're like, what on earth are they going to subdue? I mean, the lion basically looks like it's going to roll over and get its tummy rubbed. It's not exactly going to offer resistance, which this word of subduing implies there's a resistance. And it's because those images, and if that's your mental image, we should suggest it's accurate to the degree that you see it, but it needs a border. Remember, God, the other thing God does when he creates man is he builds a garden for them. He takes a spot on the earth and he cultivates it. He comes in and he, we were walking around Descanso Garden, he takes it so that you get nature and a place for man working in harmony, where man can walk around and enjoy and he's safe and he's comfortable. And that's what he does here. He puts a place for man that is made for man to live in. And outside of that is a wilderness. Now, it's not a sinful wilderness. This is prior to the fall. You don't have, don't picture like right outside of that's like bats and giant snakes that are going to eat him. So he has to stay in the garden. It's actually, this is prior to the fall. It's just that it's a wilderness. It's not yet ordered in the way of the garden. So the charge here is to go in and take that order of the garden and expand it. They are to subdue and have dominion. They are to go and make that air, make the area of the garden expand. And they're going to have resistances. Again, this is not, this is part of sin. So it's not like they're going to have lions trying to eat them, but they might have to train the lion. They're not going to have, they're going to need to take the woods and restructure the woods. The curse of the fall that eventually happens is it becomes fruitless work. It's not something all of a sudden you have to sweat for the first time. There's a joy to the work they're going to do, but it still implies a resistance. They are to go and subdue and have dominion, changing the world, expanding this garden until it covers the whole world and gets closer to our mental images we usually come into this with, thanks to many felt words. I'm way off my nose. And the third one, which also relates to the garden, is they're supposed to work and take care of the garden, which again is about what it sounds like they're supposed to garden. Um, which, taken together, kind of seems underwhelming. This means, if we look at what God tells man to do, it can kind of be summed up in having babies and taking care of a garden and expanding it. So it's basically, we're looking at this and going, is the entire purpose of the world babies and gardening? I mean, it kind of, in that regard, it sounds like... God and my grandmother got together to figure out what we should do with creation. I like babies. I like gardening. Let's go. But I do want to say that is actually what the point is. It is about babies and gardening. We just have to look deeper into what these things mean. What are these babies? This command to be fruitful and multiply comes right after something. God's blessed them, but just before that, he has created man in his own image. 
It's not just that we're making babies. We're making something that bears the image of God. The being fruitful multiplying is putting out more of those images. So what does it mean to bear the image of God? Anybody want to guess? Um, This is actually the fun thing. This is a spot where I could honestly run into a rabbit trail for the next three and a half hours about the intricacy of the things. And my wife's shaking her head. I'm not going to, don't worry. Um, This is something that actually people have thought on and argued about and had theories about for millennia because it is an important concept to what this is. As I said, it's about babies, but the reason that babies are important is because they're images of God. So what does it mean to be the image of God? Most of us come with what would be referred to or can be referred to as a substantive view, which is that we have a trait that gives us the image of God. It's the traits that vary. Sometimes it's that we're moral. Sometimes it's that we have, we can desire and love. Sometimes it's that we are um, rational or we have language or that we have free will. You come and you look at us and you look at God and you see where does that like a Venn diagram, where does it overlap? And then you subtract the part that animals have and voila, image of God. There's a number of problems with viewing it that way. The biggest one's Satan. Because almost any trait you can use to make that definition, you can also apply to Satan. We are a mor- God's a moral creature. We are a moral creature. But so is Satan, which is why he can be judged. We are rational. God's rational. So is Satan. He has language. He has free will. He has desires disordered as they may be. So we end up going, this seems like a dead end, which is why multiple conflict, uh, different theories have come out about why this is. But the reason we have these theories is because the text says very little. It simply says he created them in the image of God. And again, we kind of wish he'd expand on this. We need a sidebar with a definition. Because texts are kind of like people. The less they say, the easier it is to project upon them. Um, like you have a person, you've met and talked to them for 20 minutes, and you are sure you have found your new best friend, and you get to know them, and they're still okay, but you realize you were really just projecting a lot of what you thought onto them. And that's kind of what we get in this text. It has, says very little, so through the centuries, people continuously project. But the question is, why does it say so little? And I want to come at that answer. There's an answer. Answer to that, but I'm going to come in it slightly sideways. Would you all know what I mean if I say I'm going to store it in the cloud? What? If I'm, I'm going to store it in the cloud, who knows what I mean? Oh. My wife knows, and she's basically a Levite. Um, <laughs> I don't mean an insult. Yeah, not as an insult. It's one of her charming traits. Or if I say I'm going to buy it on Amazon, everybody knows what I mean? I could say, in the middle of this sermon, if it somehow came up, I could say, I'm going to buy it on Amazon and store it in the cloud and keep moving on, and you would all know exactly what I meant. If I was going back a thousand years to talk to somebody, would they have any clue what I was talking about if I said that sentence? Yeah, yeah, they'd probably have divided camps talking about how we were creating these clouds in which we were storing our goods. Was it a fog or was it incense? But we know. And if I speak to an audience with our culture, I don't need to expand upon the idea because you know what I mean when I say I'm going to buy it on Amazon and store it in the cloud. Similarly, so we look at this. We are not the original recipients of the Bible. Moses, when he was writing this, did not write down, like seal it up and write, to be open in 2017 in America. They'll get it. (laughs) 
he, he wrote this to an audience that received it initially. So we have reason to believe if he didn't say very much, it's very possibly because they would know what he meant. And if you go back and look at the history of that time, you find that's actually the case. The image of God is not an idea that is unique to the Bible. It shows up in two areas, primarily, in the surrounding cultures of the era in which this is written. One is idols. These are things made in the image of God. It's a physical representation of God. It's like when they have the golden calf at Sinai, which is a bad story, um, and Aaron goes, behold, your God is who brought you out of Egypt. He's basically saying to the Israelites, you can look at your God and see what your God's like, and this is the thing that brought you out of Israel. It's an image of God. And normally you take an image of God and you put it in a temple, and that way the people who are worshiping can go and they can see what their God is like. The other main use of the image of God is the, um, how do I explain this? Gods would create a man and they would give something of their substance to that man. And then they would elevate this person as a king to rule over that God's people as their vice regent, as their kind of vice president king. So that's the other main purpose. And so you take that and you read this text through that, you can start to see how these ideas open up. We are, because it's an idea of representation. It's something where an image of God is designed to, in their very being, in this king's being, as he stands here as the representatives of this God, you see, you're supposed to see what the gods are like. You're supposed to see the glory of the gods. That's why you have like a pharaoh all done up with his makeup and his headgear. And you're supposed to sit here and go, that's not just a man. That's something that's telling me what our gods are like. And you're also then supposed to experience the rule of this God, this yeah, actually, this king, and be experiencing what it's like to be ruled by your gods. So if you take that idea, this idea of what it means to be the image of God, you start to see why babies and gardening become a big deal, or at least babies. <laughs> because we're not just making babies. We are making these little images of God because the Bible also subverts. It is a common idea, but the Bible has subverted it a great deal. Because in all those ancient cultures, you made one image. You had one king that represented. There weren't a thousand little kings in these things all running around, and everybody's going, which ones are godlike? But the Bible says every human being is made in the image of God. So the intention was that in every single human being, you would be able to look and see something of who God is. You would see his glory physically represented on earth. And as you experienced those people, you would experience something showing you how God would interact on earth. So those commands to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, it is to go and put one of these images of God absolutely everywhere so you don't turn over a rock without seeing something that is telling you what God's like. And you're supposed to, in the ordering, in the bringing forth of this garden, the creation and us interacting with one another, we're meant to experience what it is like to interact with God and be ruled by God. Not because God's trying to take his hands off of this, but this is what he wanted to do. He wanted to put us as a physical representation of himself here. So you can see why babies are a big deal in this. Which still leaves gardening. The garden remains an underwhelming image, but it's because we're supposed to see this garden as more than just a garden. 
and stay with me here for a little bit because it will make sense. The garden should be viewed as a temple. It's not just a garden. It is a temple. And there's a handful of reasons we should read it this way. The first is, that's where God puts his image. Now, God is very against us making images of him. He's fine with him doing it. And he puts an image in the temple and says, here you will see something of what I'm like. It's also the place where they meet with God. God comes down to walk with them so they can meet with them. Again, a temple-like activity. Third, these commands to keep and watch, they show up again in the Pentateuch, these opening books. The next time they show up, which if you're reading through the, through the year Bible with us, two-year Bible with us, you just passed it, when they give the charge to Aaron and the priests to watch over the temple, these are the words. It's not translated keep and watch there, but it's the same two Hebrew words. It gets used in Numbers 3.7, it gets used in Numbers 3.8, it gets used in Numbers 3.26, and then it gets used again in Numbers 18.5-7, all times referring to how the priests are to take care of the temple. And finally, this is the strangest one, we probably should picture this garden being on a mountain, which none of us do by nature, or by nature, just growing up thinking of gardens. Um, but none of the pictures you see have a garden or a mountain, but that's probably where it is, and there's a handful of reasons, but, which I go into, but the most conclusive is that water flows downhill. The image we're supposed to have here, and it describes it, it takes, and this is a, again, very weird section. God's saying, I'm going to make man. He makes two of them. He gives them a job. And then he stops to talk about rivers in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 10. And he gives this image of, you have Eden, from which a river flows down into the garden region, at which point it disperses and goes to the rest of the world in different directions. Now, again, water flows down. The only way you're going to have a spot where water goes in four different directions is if it's elevated. The only way you're going to have water flow into that is if it's at a higher elevation. So you have an image of an upper area and then a middle area and then a lower area where the water flows into, which incidentally is what God made in creation. He likes this pattern because it shows up a third time in the temple and then the tabernacle. You have the Holy of Holies where the life-giving presence dwells followed by the holy place where the priests meet and minister, who then are supposed to take what they've interacted with here and take it to the people who sit in the outer courts. So we have a structure in Eden and with Eden and garden and the surrounding wilderness that mimics or actually prefigures the structure you get in the temple with the holy place where God's presence dwells, the middle place where he interacts with the priests who then take it to the outer courts where it's supposed to bring forth life and transformation. This garden is not just a garden. It's, it is a temple. It's the place where God's presence dwells and interacts with people on earth. So expanding the temple is not, sorry, expanding the garden is not just expanding a nice patch of grass. It is expanding the area where God's presence interacts with people. So what we see in this overall job that we have is we see that people are supposed to go forth and make multiple images of God everywhere. There's a prophetic calling in our nature to announce who God is. We are to go forth and bring order to the surrounding area and the people and everything we interact with and the lands, extending God's order. There's a kingly calling upon us as well as people. 
And finally, there's a priestly calling where we are to minister God's spirit throughout the earth so that creation experiences God through us. Do you see what it's supposed to be? There's 7.5 billion people on earth, which is a mind-boggling number. I actually, because this is what I do, you know the Rose Bowl? About 100,000 people. If you stuck a Rose Bowl in every seat, you get about the population. You you stick a Rose Bowl in every seat of the Rose Bowl, you almost get the population of the earth. so, which is just, but can you imagine if every one of those people represented God correctly? If you could look at every people and see, see how God was meant to be. And we can cheat and kind of jump forward if every person was like Jesus. If every wrong that was done was forgiven fully. And if there were only wrongs that were being done at this point are, oops, I didn't see you there, because there's no sin. Every person is looking and longing to give of themselves and lay down their good and seek the good of every single person, 7.5 billion people acting that way with each other and showing what it's like to be with God. You wake up in the morning and you roll over and your spouse is there and there's no strife between you whatsoever. And there never has been. And you know each other better than we will ever know our spouses. And then you go downstairs and your kids are there and they are actually trying to learn from you what it's like to fully reflect God in his image as opposed to resisting you at every turn. (laughs) And then you have coffee because coffee belongs there. And, (laughs) (laughs) And you think about what your day of work is gonna be like. And you know that you have a day ahead of you of fruitful work that will bring forth life that is creative work of working alongside God to bring forth the order that reflects his rule. And you do this and you step outside into a world that has been doing this for millennia. Can you imagine the culture we would have built? It it, it moves beyond what we can imagine. To have a culture that we've built that is in harmony with the world around us. It's in harmony across the world with all the other people. A place in which these lives flourish. This was what we were supposed to do. This is why God made us, this is what he put us on earth to do, to fill the earth with people who show what he's like and who they are and how they are and how they interact with each other, how they reign, and in just ministering and interacting with him and taking care of his creation. We were to live in a garden. That's obviously not what happened. Um, the Bible doesn't feel the need to argue for the fact that that's not what happened. Um, we have mirrors and windows for that. It is, the Bible simply tells us why it happened. It tells us that we who were made in the image of God wanted to be like God. We were meant to reflect and we wanted the position in showing forth our own glory. We reached forth to be like God as opposed to taking the role we had. We who were meant to be prophets became false prophets. The image cracked and we display a broken image now. We who are supposed to be good kings reigning like God became despots. We still subdue and have dominion. It's kind of our thing. 
but we do it really poorly. And we, who were supposed to tend to the guard, to the temple, and have God's presence in our life, had that ripped apart. And we found ourselves separated from God. And that last one's the most tragic. Because if God's presence was still there, there's still a hope the other two would be fixed. But we have been separated from the very thing that was meant to bring forth life. And the remaining chapters, chapters 4 through 11, kind of the prehistory of creation, are basically, uh, prehistory of Israel, sorry, are basically just creation kind of circling the drain. Um, immediately after it, you get husband turns against wife. Nature uh, becomes a burden. Childbirth becomes a pain. I mean, imagine, ladies, childbirth is supposed to be easy. Um, brother turns against brother and kills them. Next guy we get is a charmer who brags that he'll kill everybody while oppressing his wives. Um, God basically tries to wipe the whole thing out, saves a couple, and immediately have strife between father and son. And it all culminates in Babel, where people who, again, were meant to go forth, spreading to the world, showing God's right reign and having good relationship with him, stop decide they don't want to be dispersed, build a structure from which they can oppress the surrounding area, and decide to build a tower to try and go take by force what they have been lost to them. And God comes down and breaks that down. And that's where the opening of opening section of Genesis ends. It ends in the ruins of Babel. The human project, the thing we were meant to do, is broken. The promise is lost. That's where we stop. And that really is actually where I stopped this week. Um, the good stuff, or starting to be good stuff, literally starts the next sentence. But that's where we end for this week. Because I got creation and fall. Um, you chose creation. I chose creation and fall. Thank you, John. <laughs> I actually, I yeah. And we could leap forward and start talking about what is to come. I could give a preview for the section to come. Um, I referenced this uh, storybook Bible earlier, and it is, it's very popular in our house. Um, and one of my daughter's favorite stories is what she refers to as the Owie story, um, which is Jesus on the cross. Um, she loves that story, and her obsession with it is how his daddy is going to make him better. And I think she, she didn't make the leap because she knows that uh, God is Jesus' father. She made the leap because it's an injured child, so he needs his dad to make him better. So when we read that story, though, we don't stop where that chapter ends, because that chapter ends with Jesus in the tomb, and that's a little heavy for a three-year-old, because his daddy has not made him better. So we always read it as a two-chapter abridged section where I mash it together and it goes from Jesus going up the hill with the cross on his back to Mary going to tell everybody because she's happy she saw Jesus. That's how Rose's story sits. And that's how we could treat this. I've told you the bad thing. I could push it together and go immediately into where we're going next. But I don't think that's what we do because we're all adults. What I want to look at instead is what we do with a broken promise. What do we do with the state we find this story in at the end of chapter 11? 
having seen what was intended, having seen why God made this. Because again, this was an intentional creation. This was what he was aiming for. Us as kings, prophets, and priests, administering his rule kindly towards each other and having a relationship with him. That was what he aimed for. And that promise is lost at the end of these chapters. So what do we do with it at this scale? And what do we do with it in our lives? Because while I will, I'm going to steadfastly stand, this is not simply a metaphor of what happens in every person's life. The truth is every one of us is touched by this. We are children after the fall. Every one of us knows what it is to have set out on good things and find them in ruins later. Or at least damaged. We know what it is in our relationships and marriages and friendships to sit there and look and go, this is going to be fantastic with our children, just having that new child and all the hope that's there and coming down the path and go and wondering, how did we get here? Because of our sin, because of the sin of other people, and just because of the general crumminess of this world. What do we do when we find ourselves there? We have jobs where we set out in hope and expectation of what's to be. And it just becomes tedious and hard quickly. We live lives that are often filled with different things we wish were differently. That it's set out on a better path and we wish they could just find the fulfillment. How do we live that? How do we deal with a broken promise? And I want to just suggest three ways in closing. The first is that we lament, because there has been a real loss. Um, we can, as Christians, tend to over-spiritualize things and want to hop immediately to the fact that Jesus is coming. Um, and hallelujah, he is. But we can do this in a way that diminishes the fact that pain really has happened. It is not... Generally speaking, not super spiritual to never mourn because Jesus is coming. We are commanded to mourn. We are instructed to mourn with those who mourn. We aren't to sit there and just remind them that Jesus is coming back. Don't worry, guys. Because the pain is real and the loss is real. A good example of this is Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. For those who just quickly the story, Jesus has come, a man is dead in the tomb, and everyone's mourning. Jesus knows what he's going to do. He knows that in moments, that man is going to walk forth from that tomb, and there will be celebration, and a, two sisters will have their brother back. But what does Jesus do first? He weeps. He sits there, and he knows the pain of this age. And he knows the struggle. He knows that even after he's taken it back, those women still dealt with their brother being in the tomb for two days. So he weeps. And we cannot push to be more spiritual than Jesus and try and move beyond that quickly. When bad things happen, a proper response is to lament. This world should prompt in us lamenting a lot. A lot of times the reason we move to that super spiritual is we actually just don't take it seriously. And I am guilty of this. My wife is much better at lamenting than I am. Sometimes it's just because I do have a solid faith that believes God can make things better, but sometimes it's just because I can be easily distracted. And what happens is we then find ourselves in a place of real mourning 
and no one around us is mourning with us because they aren't paying attention. We need to be a people who laments when bad things happen. But we can't be a people who stays there. We need to then look for hope. So we lament and then we look for hope because we do not just want to stay in the bad spot. And as I said, the Bible is filled with hope for these bad situations. We are in the probably darkest section of the Bible outside of the like page and a half where Jesus is buried. Um, This is not a good spot, but even in these opening chapters, we see reason for hope. Sometimes the hope is a thin sliver, but it's there. God gives a prophecy that Satan, who did this, his head will be crushed in the third chapter. He he shows compassion to Adam and Eve and closes them. More amazingly, he doesn't just erase things and start over. He shows he's committed to these people. and he's, You get a feeling something's going to happen because why doesn't he just end it? Even when he gets to Noah, he doesn't just end it. He's just done. And he's still like, okay, I'll take Noah. There seems to be an indication in this that God has a detention. So there is a hope that he's going to bring something about. You can still, even reading just these 11 chapters and stopping here, if you look at this hard enough, you can see reason to hope in the future. And sometimes that's just where we find ourselves. But thankfully, the hope gets clearer and clearer as we move through this. And you'll see that in the coming weeks as we move chapter to chapter, chapter. I still get a pretty dark chap- uh, section next week. Mm-hmm. But it does get better. And by the time we get to the sixth week, we see a redemption of all things. Because God is in the business of redeeming. He doesn't do what we often want him to do. Which is just to wipe away what happened. There are things I've done that I wish could just be erased. There are things that have been done to me that I wish could just be erased. And that would have been the natural thing for God. would have been just to erase Adam and Eve and go... I can make these things easy. I'll make another one. But he sticks through it. And the fall will remain part of humanity's story. But it is a story that is redeemed. As will the things that we have done and have done to us remain part of our stories. But they take a new light in redemption. So that, and that's the last thing. We long for that redemption. So we lament the loss. We look for the hope, and then we long for the redemption that's to come. We know that God works in a process. But we can still look out there knowing the hope that we have and expect it. This is part of our calling as disciples. We look at the pain that's in our neighbors and our friends, and we seek to see that pain restored. We seek to see, seek seek to see them restored to wholeness. We work to see, look to see some of the damage of the sin that we brought into this world undone. We look at our own lives and we see our lack of sanctification. Having mourned it and trusted in Jesus for change, we long for it and we seek to see it come in as much as now as possible. We pray for it. We fast for it. That's why we do silence and solitude. We do it because we were meant to be people who come to God to be changed. And we have hope in Jesus that that is the case. And by hope, I don't mean a, I really hope I win the lottery sort of thing. I mean a firm expectation that in Jesus, that is the case.
So we see the brokenness of this world. We see it in ourselves. We see it in our uh, relationships. We see it in the world around us, and we mourn it. But we don't stop there. We look for the true hope we have in Jesus. And having done that, we long for that transformation to come, and we live it out as much as we can. Because the purpose God had for this world will be fulfilled. He will bring about a situation where once again, this earth is filled, well, not once again, finally, this earth is filled with people who reflect his glory, who behave as he does, and who have a relationship ministering with him.